We're going to read one verse. This is going to be the introduction to a new series today. We'll read this one verse together, and then we'll see what this book is all about. James chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read this aloud together, and you can cheat read on the screen if you want. Here we go. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. This is the word of the Lord. Perhaps that might be the the, the shortest scripture verse that we will read in a long time. Um, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gathering of your church today. Uh, Lord, we're gathering here in what we consider great weather. Uh, fall is in a full swing. We've got um, a breeze blowing outside. The sky is clearing up. Um, and even as we enjoy this weather, we are reminded of our friends down south from uh, from North Carolina all the way to Florida who uh, are digging themselves out, drying themselves out, or weathering still the storm from Hurricane uh, Matthew. And we pray your grace on them. Lord, we pray for help, help through uh, emergency management uh, agencies, FEMA, Red Cross, and, and just people like us. So God, would you tend to that through your people and uh, cause those people who are unsafe to be safe and who are just... Uh, uh, and different emotions from the events of this weekend uh, calm their fears and put their lives back together. Lord, as we dive into your word, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and uh, eyes to see what you would have as we learn what this book is about, who this man that wrote it, wh- who he is and what he's about, and how these words might help us grow as believers. And we pray that in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. So this, this fall... Uh, we are starting a study in the short uh, New Testament book of, of James, and we're calling the series Live What You Believe, because literally that, that really is what James is trying to do in his short book to us. He's exhorting us to live the very faith, live it out loud, um, what we've believed. Uh, and really, as I've studied this book over the course of my Christian life, but definitely as I've dived into it to prepare for this series, James is probably one of the most practical books in all, all of the Bible, definitely in, in the New Testament. James is actually classified as wisdom literature, and that should sound familiar to you because we just finished last week uh, our series in Proverbs, um, Proverbs also being wisdom literature. If you've delved in other parts of the Bible, you've happened upon wisdom literature, uh, Ecclesiastes or uh, the Psalms. Uh, even the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, are classified as wisdom literature. And, and this is what wisdom literature is trying to do for us. It's basically taking principles that uh, we understand and making them more practical. I mean, how do I live this out in, in life every day? Wisdom literature literally is supposed to help us live what we believe. Now, because James is a, a short book and also because we find James to be uh, direct. I mean, I, I imagine, I don't know how tall James was, but he reminds me of a short, bold, uh, righteous, angry person. You know, that's kind of who, that's kind of the personality that, that he has. I mean, right from the beginning, I mean, really, really we're going to read a little bit of it this, the, the, today, but definitely starting next week, right from the get-go, he starts like telling us stuff, like not just the, like suggesting, but just like saying, you need to do this because you're a Christian who believes in and trusts in Jesus. Um, and so right from the get go, verse, verse chapter one, verse two, he says, um, you know, he says, count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Uh, and he goes on and on and on with uh, kind of an authoritative perspective. James is going to stir us into action. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to make us live the faith that we believe. His words are bold, uh, but I think they match the boldness of of his life. And he comes across as passionate, frustrated, again, as a righteously angry person, uh, but also one who's deeply moved and concerned that we would have the same passion that he has to live our faith uh, to Jesus in a world um, that desperately needs that kind of passion. Um, and so James is going to offer us a lot of counsel, counsel on uh Issues that you face as a Christian every single day, stuff like trials, suffering, the pain that you go through. He's going to give us some advice on how to get through that. He's going to talk about those who live in poverty versus those who live uh, with the rich, uh, a richness of life. 
He's going to talk about what to do in, in instances of favoritism, how we're supposed to handle that, social justice issues. He's going to uh, talk on that topic, um, controlling our tongue. I mean, he says a lot about that. He, he devotes half a chapter uh, to uh, the, the uncontrollability of our tongue. He's going to talk about worldliness, a Christian, uh, how a Christian is supposed to be in the world, not yet of the world, something that we call worldliness. He's going to talk about boasting, planning, prayer, illness. Those are just a few of the several things that we will happen upon as we work through the book of James. But here's the thing, as important as these things are to the book and, and us learning about them, how we're supposed to, to gear our life towards them. Probably the most important thing that, that we could do for ourselves um, as we start this book is to learn really about the author that wrote it. And you should do that really in regards to, to every book that you're reading, whether it's Christian or, or, or secular. But more importantly, as you're reading the Bible, you want to understand who the author is, because who the author is is going to help you understand the angle they're coming from and exactly what they're trying to convey to you. So uh, who is James? In my opinion, James is the most fascinating author of all of Scripture, and it's primarily because of this. He's the, I mean, he's the little brother of Jesus. I mean, can you fathom that? I mean, could you, could you even, like, pretend that you were the brother of, or, or the half-brother of the, of the man who is God. That's just unfathomable. I don't even know how to imagine something like that. But here's the thing. To prove that, that this James that wrote this book is the half-brother of Jesus, we got to do a little work. Uh, there's actually three people named James in the New Testament. And so if you know a little bit about your Bible, uh, the, one of the most prominent James that we know is the Remember the, the, the trio of Peter, James, and John? All right, so of course we know about Peter because Peter is the, the boisterous, um, speak-before-you-think apostle that, um, that you know, Jesus entrusted to, to grow the church. And then you have uh, James and John, of Peter, James, and John. James and John were, were brothers. They were fishermen. They were the sons of Zebedee. They're also called uh, Boragenes or the sons of thunder. And so that James of Peter, James and John, um, we know of him that, uh, that he was martyred really at the beginning of the Christian era. So pretty closely after Pentecost, when the, the, the church just just blew up with with conversions and all that stuff. Uh, the second person that was an apostle, James. So the first, the James, Peter, Peter, James, John, he's an apostle. You also have an apostle listed in uh, the beginning of Matthew, uh, Mark 3, I think. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, we basically have little to no information about that James uh, post-resurrection. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us about him and his activities. Uh, there's very little in church history, the, uh, the, the history of the church, that tells us what happened to him and because there's no record of his life and his activities uh, post-resurrection, we can uh, pretty accurately uh, say that it's probably not that, uh, that particular James that wrote this book. And that's, that's because uh, James writes in a way that he assumes the people that he's writing to knows who he is. And that leaves James the brother of Jesus. But I would tell you, you know, just that fact, knowing there's three James in the New Testament and knowing what happened to two of those three James uh, isn't proof enough uh, to say that this James is the little brother of Jesus. We got to know a little bit more. And, and the Bible helps us out both in the book of Acts and in early Christian history. It tells us that Jesus brother James became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And this is where Acts helps us out. We learn in Acts chapter 15 that James was a pro was prominent in the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council was it was the first uh, I would call it an ecumenical council where Christians came together to make uh, to adjudicate the way forward for the church. In this case, they were trying to figure out what to do with all these Gentiles that were coming to faith through Peter and Paul's ministry. And so they called Peter, they called Paul and Barnabas in, and they came to Jerusalem. And Peter and Paul were able to give a report. We're going to all these Gentiles. And they're coming to faith, just receiving the Holy Spirit and, uh, you know, really believing in Jesus the same way that we have believed. And so what's keeping them from coming to the faith and being called Christians? And the person that they were all reporting to was the guy was was James. James was the pillar of the early church. And, you know, we hear a lot about Peter. Of course, we hear a whole lot about Paul. 
But in this instance, they were they themselves, the apostle, the apostles were reporting to James, who was called a pillar of the church. Also in Acts chapter 15, uh, we see a number of things that that James says. You can just go there and look at the very end of that as James is is giving an adjudication on how the Gentiles should be brought assimilated into at that point, you know, the 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 Christian Jewish life. Um, And so James says a couple phrases that that also appear in his epistle. That's sort of how we put together that that this James, the James who was a pillar of the faith over the over the church in Jerusalem, uh, is also James, the little brother of Jesus that wrote this book. But That's not it. Uh, Look at James chapter one, verse one again. So James, I mean, he says up up front, he, he calls himself James. And interestingly, there's no other identification. He doesn't say I'm an apostle. He doesn't he doesn't need to say I'm I'm little I'm Jesus little brother. He doesn't say where he's from, what he's doing or anything like that. Um, interestingly, again, there's no I mean, there's not the qualification in his ministry that we find in Paul's letters. You this is me. This is who I am and where I'm coming from. I got these people with me and I'm bringing you the real deal. You need to listen to me. James feels no need to do that. He simply uh, almost unassumingly uh, uh, assumes that his audience knows who he is and who else but someone like, you know, the Lord's little brother is going to be known by everyone. So when we say Jesus, uh, when we say that Jesus was the half brother of James, this is what we mean. We mean that James was the, the full son, the natural born son of Joseph and Mary. And so he was just a normal part of the family. But it was Jesus that uh, who, of whom Joseph wasn't his real father. Jesus' father uh, was God. Of course, we, we look at this um, in the, in the in incarnation. Uh, the incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas, that the second person of the Trinity condescended himself, was incarnated, that, that word means be, becoming, becoming flesh, in the, in the womb of Mary, and he grew to be a baby, nine months old, like, just like we have babies now, and he was born into the world, a human being. God become man. And so Jesus is the half brother of, of James. And think about it. If, if I have an adoptive sister and and so I, it, literally she's she's kind of like my, you know, legally she's my full sister. Legally she's kind of half. Um, and so just like any sibling growing up with, with uh, the siblings you had, uh, brothers, sisters, uh, think about the things that you did growing up, uh, playing outside together, getting dirty, taking baths together when you, when, you know, when that was appropriate to do that. Um, they were probably uh, down in the basement playing Wii together, although they didn't have Wii back then. Uh, I can imagine James and Jesus in, you know, uh, Jesus is on the top because he's the oldest and James on the bottom of the bunk bed and they're telling stories late at night. But of course, Jesus went to bed on time because he didn't do anything. <laughs> He didn't do anything imperfect. But this is how they grew up. They would have used, I mean, they would have gone to the outhouse or the slit trench or whatever their form of a bathroom. They would have done all these simple things together. And so who else but James to be able to articulate for us just how, you know, how life as a Christian is supposed to be because he lived it. He didn't know he was living it as he was living it, but he lived it um, because he eventually figured out that his that his brother, his half-brother Jesus, was the Lord of glory. Um, I, I'm, it's just unfathomable. I, James gets to say, you know what? My older brother is God. It's crazy. And so you'd think that growing up, rubbing shoulders with Jesus, that, um, that James, at some point, would know who he was and would be the first one to sign up to be uh, Jesus' disciple. Wouldn't you think that, that he would see something in his brother that would make him think that something was special about him and that he would follow him all, all of his days? Uh, of course, you've read the Bible, and you know that's not to be true. I mean, it's, it's kind of like it, it absolutely didn't happen. In fact, the Bible tells us of several instances where Jesus' siblings thought he was a little loony. I mean, they thought he was crazy. Mark chapter three, um, Jesus is, is he comes out of Galilee and, and this is early in his ministry. And he have, he has hordes of I mean crowds 
following him. And he comes back, I think, to Jerusalem. Uh, and these crowds are still following him and his half brothers and sisters. And I think Mary, his mom, is with them. And they try and take Jesus and pull him away because they thought he was crazy. It didn't make sense that all these people were following him and that Jesus, simple Jesus that they knew growing up, were saying the things that he said. John chapter seven. Um, this, again, is kind of early in Jesus ministry. He's done some miracles. People are following him. And there's a festival. The Feast of Booths is getting ready to go on in Jerusalem. He's with his family in Galilee and his brothers are mocking him. And they mock him so much that they say, hey, if you're so good, if you can do all miracles, if you want to get a crowd, you need to go to Jerusalem because you want to be you want to be made known. And then the scripture says um, kind of poignantly, it says uh, because his brothers did not believe in him. Isn't that that interesting that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, grew up around brothers and they had no idea who he was to the point that they they saw the beginning of his ministry. They saw crowds following him. They saw even some miracles and they could not see who he was. They did not believe in him. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is uh, a beautiful uh, book of the Bible. Uh, Paul is writing to a wayward church, but he's teaching them about some some great things. And one of the things he's teaching them about in 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection. And uh, and so he he tells them uh, about the principal things about the resurrection. And in verse three, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve, the other apostles. That, that's what that means. And it says in verse six, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive though some have fallen asleep. Verse seven, then he appeared to James, his little brother James, then to all the apostles. And then he appeared to to Paul. Um, It took Jesus, the the post-resurrected Jesus, to come directly to his brother James. And I don't know what the conversation was, but it's that it's really probably at that moment that that lights start coming on. James gets the epiphany. You really are. God, you really are the Lord. We don't know when James, when James actually came to faith. Definitely before that moment there in First Corinthians 15, James didn't have any regard for his brother. Not that anything was special about him, even seeing crowds follow him, even seeing um, him do miracles. But at some point, probably at this point here, when Jesus comes to him post-resurrection, he, he believes. And it's from this point forward that James becomes, I mean, rapidly the pillar of the early church. Um, I would I would think that from this moment on, uh, James whole life, uh, he experienced persecution from this point on. We're told in 8062 um, that, uh, you know, James is, is the leader of the early church. This is, isn't too far from Jesus himself dying. The church is, is booming. Um, and they took James to the top of the temple in Jerusalem, and they were trying to get James to to recant uh, to recant his allegiance to Jesus. They 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 were threatening to kill him if he didn't denounce that Jesus was was God. He's just a man. They were trying to get him to say. And on the top of the temple, uh, James says these words. He says, "Hey, this man is not just my brother. He's God. I I'm not going to recant him." I believe that he is God. And so this is what they did to James. They threw him off the temple. They threw him off. Um, and it was it was probably uh, the temple at that time would have been a, a three or four story structure. I mean, you can imagine someone falling from that height is going to die. James did not die. And as he lay on the ground, he's praying prayers for the very men that are attacking him. And so this is how they killed James. Someone from that same mob come from the top of the temple. They come down and they bash his head in. And James becomes a a martyr like all the other apostles uh, of the early church. James, I mean, he died a martyr's death. This is who wrote this letter. This is James, the little brother of Jesus. And so let's talk a little bit about this book. Um, Scholars would agree that this book is the earliest New Testament manuscript we have. I mean, it is the earliest book (laughs) written in the New Testament. And so it was probably written around AD 40, AD 40. 
which would be very, I mean, just a few years after uh, Jesus had, had gone up into glory. Um, and this is what's going on in the church at that time. Um, the church is growing. It's spreading. Um, Christians in Christians are, are planning other churches. They're establishing new congregations throughout the, the ancient landscape, mostly in uh, what's known as the, the Roman province. And if you remember the book of Acts, OK, you had Jesus died. He appeared to the uh, he appeared to the, the apostles and some of the disciples. And he told them, uh, you're going to be my witnesses. But before you go, this is Acts chapter one, go to Jerusalem, go to the upper room and wait for the Holy Spirit to come and empower you to be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit comes. Um, they go in the midst of, of the celebration of Pentecost and uh, they become Jesus' witnesses. And after that, Peter speaks, the, I mean, his first sermon, but it's also his best sermon. And 3,000 people come to faith. 3,000 in one day. We learn two chapters later in Acts that the gospel starts spreading and another 5,000 men, we don't know, probably three times that because it doesn't, it doesn't count the women and children that also, that also believe in Jesus and ultimately come to faith. And so it would be fair to say that, I mean, the church in Jerusalem is bursting at the seams. I mean, they're experiencing the favor of God just by Christians going and sharing their faith and preaching the gospel. And so men and women are becoming Christians every day. That is until Stephen dies. Stephen's death as a martyr. Acts chapter six. The, the church is growing so much. The apostles can't they can't simply study and pray and um, and deliver the word to the people. And so they create an office of the church called a deacon. And Stephen is one of these men that they um, they that they commissioned to be a deacon. And the word deacon means serve, to be a servant of the church. And it's said of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 that he was uh, full of the Holy Spirit and wise. And uh, one chapter later, Acts chapter 7, Stephen, uh, God orchestrates uh, an, uh, a meeting, uh, really an altercation between Stephen and the religious leaders of the day. And Stephen, in his wisdom, um, recounts the narrative of Scripture beginning with uh, Abraham, going through Moses, the patriarchs, all the way through the Old Testament history of Israel being exiled and then um, ending up in the, uh, the dispersion of, of their current day. And, and he tells about the, the incarnation and the, the, the life and the death of Jesus. And then he rebukes the religious leaders for for being so close to Jesus, seeing his miracles, experiencing uh, the, the son of God himself and yet not coming to faith in him. And guess what they did to Stephen? They stoned him. Stephen becomes a martyr of the church. The Bible tells us uh, the Bible and church history tells us that uh, a great persecution broke out from that moment that Stephen was martyred and the church in Jerusalem. I mean, they fled. They dispersed. And they, they did what all cultures even today do when persecution or war. And, and think of Aleppo. Those people are dispersed. They're trying to find safety. But here's the, the unique thing that happened in these days as these Christians were being persecuted. They, they fled. They dispersed. But they didn't, they didn't go into hiding. Uh, they fled and they carried with them the gospel. They, they were preaching the gospel. The gospel was coming off of their lips and they preached the gospel to anyone who would hear. And they established churches um, throughout all of ancient Rome. And so that's what it means in James 1.1, back to our text again, when it says, uh, when it talks about the 12 tribes and dispersion. James was writing to people who had been dispersed because, because of the persecution in Jerusalem. Um, you can't read those words, 12 tribes in dispersion, particularly 12 tribes without thinking about Old Testament Israel, right? We always the Old Testament um, in, in many places refers to Israel, the, the Old Testament people of God as the 12 tribes of Israel. And a lot of times we could think that James is writing to a Jewish audience, but he's not really doing that. He's, he's writing to uh, to present day Christians. He's writing to uh, the real Israel, because the real Israel aren't just Jews. The real Israel are those who have. Um, who have the same faith that Abraham had, those who have trusted in and believed in Jesus for their salvation. And so James is writing to, to people like us. 
uh, Jew or Gentile, men or women, slave or free, uh, Scythian uh, or barbarian. He's writing to people who come from all different kinds of ethnicities and all different backgrounds and uh, who have come together in faith in the person and work of Jesus. And so this is what James would say as he's writing, you know, as he's thinking through and writing this letter. He's saying we, we are the new Israel. The church is the Israel. It's not ethnic Jews that are Israel, but rather all those who are in Christ. James is writing to the true church that, that God has dispersed throughout the world. And if you think about it, we're still dispersed. We're dispersed all throughout the world. And that, honestly, is the way God intended it. Little pockets of Christians um, testifying to who God is and what he's done in their life and, and a willing ear and a little, bit of the, a little bit of the Holy Spirit being added to those who, who would come to faith. And those are the people of God. And so here's why James wrote this letter. He wrote it to encourage people like us who are in increasingly hostile environments to, to trust God, to not give up on him, to have lives that are dependent on that are dependent on God instead of instead of um, just being comfortable in the comforts of our own lives in in the world. He's writing to remind people like us of the practicalities of living what we believe. James will say it's not good enough just to believe. And he's not talking about you can't be saved by believing. He's saying true faith has has some action behind it. It has some oomph behind it. It's going to be some work done as a, as a result of you <laughs> believing. Now, the last thing I would say, uh, we're going to do something here in a second, but the last thing I would say in terms of background for, for this book is it's a letter. If, in fact, at the very top of my Bible, it says the letter of James. And so this is what, this is what would happen if you were in the early church in the first century and you, you were meeting in house churches and a, a letter came. So there would be a runner and that runner would have a parchment of a manuscript from, um, from one of the uh, authorities of the church. In this case, it would, it would be from James. And so they would, they would consider it scripture because it came from an apostle who was an authority of the church. They would, they would assume that that was a word from God for them from that particular individual. They met in house churches, and so uh, the letter would be delivered to whoever the pastor was. The pastor would call the people together. They would gather in a, ha- in a house they would bring food, and so they would share a meal. They would sing some songs. They would pray some prayers, and then he would open the word. That's what it would be, and he would read the letter, and they would respond to the letter. They would pray. They would sing. They would have communion, and then they might talk about it. It would be an all-afternoon affair. All right, we don't have all afternoon, but guess what we're going to do? We're the gathered church. We're not in the house. Y'all couldn't fit in my house. But we're going to go old school. We're going to actually open up. We already, we already opened it up. We're going to read the letter of James. Now, this is, this is risky. First of all, because it's five chapters. I'm not going to read it fast. I'm going to read it so that we can all understand it. Um, it's not just our kids, but all of us are sort of ADD because we're, you know, look at y'all. It's like falling back. <gasps> iPhone, you know, we can lose our attention. Um, but I want you to train in, and I want you to do one of two things. I want you to either open your Bible and read along. It's not going to be on the screen. Or I want you to perhaps even just listen. Listen as if you were in the early church, and you're hearing this, this for the first time, this letter from James, and he's giving you practical advice uh, to your church that's in dispersion. I mean, you're, you're hunkered down, not afraid, but just, you know, just trying to live your life out loud, and you're getting this guidance from a pillar of the church, and he's telling you this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read this all, so hunker down. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, but its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God can't tempt with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You have not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? So, so you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. 
And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out one by another? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Chapter three. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for for you know that you that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue. It's a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, standing the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and setting on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people and are, who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring, uh, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Can neither can a salt pond yield fresh water? Who's wise and understanding among you? By his good, good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Verse, uh, chapter 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother and speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. 
Your gold and your silver have corroded and your corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts on the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, for so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those who blessed. Uh, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is there any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word to us this morning. What stuck out to you? I ask my communion group that every every week that we meet um, because I want to hear their thoughts. And, you know, this is the way the Holy Spirit works. As, As we are giving ourselves to God's divine word, uh, his revelation of himself to us. He's speaking to us. And I know you can't, I don't necessarily want you to talk back to me. Um, but here's what stuck out to me. Three quick things and then we'll be done. Then we're going to do what the early church did. We're going to sing a song. We're going to, uh, as we're gathered, we're going to experience a meal, remembering the death and the resurrection of Jesus, because that's what the early church did. And so I don't know how, how you felt about just our, I mean, that was like, 14 minutes of reading and listening, but I hope it edified you because this is God's word to you. It's his revelation of himself to you through his through his his servant, James. Here's what stuck out to me. Three things. And I first I call this first thing brother, brother, servant. Um, James is Jesus brother, his little brother. And for those of you that have a brother or, or really any, any sibling works with the same thing. I mean, you can imagine what the relationship was like between them. Playful, perhaps antagonistic in a non sinful way on Jesus' behalf, but just, you know, just, just being brothers and doing the thing that brothers do. James is Jesus' younger brother. Yeah, here's the words that James says in James 1 1. He calls himself a servant. The Greek word here, servant, is the word doulos, and it means slave. We have to be careful with, with how we use, you know, how we interpret this word in the New Testament. We, we can't superimpose our understanding of American slavery on the Bible, Old or New Testament. When the Bible speaks of slavery in the Old and the New Testament, primarily, not always, but primarily, it wasn't race-based. It wasn't lifelong. It was usually debt-related. A person had gotten themselves into a pickle, and the only way they could... They could get themselves out. There was no welfare. There's, you couldn't go to just go work at McDonald's and kind of work your way out of it. You became a servant of, of, of someone until your debt was paid. And here's what James is saying. He's calling himself a doulos, which in James' case 
is, you know, he's saying, I'm free. I've worked off my debt. I'm emancipated. I can go do whatever I want, but I'm going to subject myself. I'm going to make my servant of my brother who is also God. That's what James is saying. I'm free to do whatever I want to do with my life. My debt is paid, yet I'm going to enslave myself. I'm going to make myself a servant of the Lord of glory because that's what my little brother deserves because he's God. And I would tell you that's the very thing that God is trying to make in us. He's trying to do that in us. The, the, the Bible in other places tells us that we, we're emancipated, we're free. You're, you're free to go and do whatever you want. In the grace of Jesus, uh, you have every freedom in the world. But the Bible would also exhort you to become a slave of God, to, to enslave yourself to the one who set you free by his own blood. And James models that for us. We can serve whatever master we want, but James is exhorting us to serve Jesus, brother, servant. Here's the other thing in that. Um, James, I mean, this, this is, he's t- entitling himself a servant. He gives himself no other title in this book except for that. Yet James was at one point the pillar, the main spokesperson for the early church, adjudicating things and speaking over every apostle that we, we know in the Bible to include Peter and, and Paul. He gave up all of his prestigious credentials uh, to call himself a slave of God. And, and that is the humility that James is offering to us as he begins his book. And it's going to help us as he tells us about the practicalities of living out our faith. Here's the second thing, suffering. We're going to look at this in chapter, in, in chapter 1, verse 2 through 12 um, at, the, at the next week. Uh, I could say a whole lot. I, I really wanted to dive into that, that this week, but I, was, I thought it was important that we Take a little time and figure out who we're, who we're listening to in the, 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 the person of James. James 1-2 says, Count it all, my, all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There's a theology of suffering in James, but I would say there's a theology of suffering that comes from the, the whole Bible. James says it this way, not if, not, not, not if, but when. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so if you're a Christian, uh, you're going to suffer. In fact, probably more so because you're a Christian, God is going to cause you to suffer. That's a mega theme in all of Scripture because it's God's means of reminding you of your dependence and your need, not on, not on anything that could deliver you or coddle you or save you other than, than Jesus. And what we're going to learn as we look at the trials that James encourages us in is that God is God wants you to invite him into the middle of your pain or your trial or your suffering. He wants us to uh, to meet him in our suffering, now, which means there's a purpose for the trials that you go, you go through. I'm not saying that there, there are some things that happen to you that are tragic that you can't explain. But for the most part, the suffering that we go through, that we go through as people, as Christians, God has a purpose in it. And it's his, a purpose to to grow you, but also to bring you to himself. Thirdly and last, and I'll close with this, the gospel according to James. We read the whole thing. Jesus' name only comes up two times. Two times. He only says Jesus' name two times. There's no mention of the cross or the atonement, death and resurrection of Jesus. James never uses the vocabulary that we are familiar with in Paul's writings. Justification by faith, reconciliation with God by the blood of Jesus, uh, redemption that comes from all that Christ does, dying in our place for our sin. Um, the familiar things we find in Paul's letters, James chooses not to say those things. James talks about faith a lot. There's 14 times you'll see the word faith in the book of James. 11 of those 14 are in one chapter, in one section of one chapter, and they mostly are used in his great argument, his famous words, faith without works are dead. And it's really the absence of of these gospel elements, I would call them, that causes some people, uh, most notably uh, reformers like Martin Luther, to say that there is no gospel in James. Uh, Martin Luther wanted to take James and make it and just take it out of the canon completely. And so where, where do we find the gospel in James? It's too much to unpack, but this is where the gospel of James is going to be. It's going to be in his person. 
We're going to see the gospel come out of him because he lived. He lived he, unknowingly. He lived with Jesus. And I, I would say his words come to us much as Jesus words would come to us. Specifically, James is James was called James the just. And he was given that term in the early church because he was known for his own personal righteousness. And what comes out of James's mouth is is really uh, a passion for all of those that he's speaking to. Jews, Jewish Christians, people like us to be as passionate about our faith um, as he is. Yes, James talks a lot about the law. He talks a lot about commands. There's 108 commands. There's 59 commands in 108 verses. It's going to sound like James is going back to the Old Testament, but James is articulating for us a faith that's, that's a working faith. It's a living faith. Particularly, James says this, and this is really where the gospel is in his, his writing. He says, um, God, God in many ways is going to help us understand that the very things that he's calling us to do, we can't do without his help. James will say that no person actually fulfills the law. We fail at it every time. But this is what he says in his book. He says, but God, God desires mercy over judgment. What's mercy? It's God not giving you what you deserve. And then later he'll say, um, um, but God gives more grace. James 4, 6. What is grace? It's God favoring you, giving you what you don't deserve. Where does mercy and grace come from? It comes from the person and work of Jesus. Jesus extends mercy to us by receiving the wrath of God in himself that we are deserved. And he does it on the cross. And he extends favor to us post-resurrection, well, through the cross, but definitely post-resurrection by giving us the Holy Spirit and drawing us to himself to believe in him and not counting our unrighteousness against us. In fact, he imputes, he gives us his righteousness so that we can be reconciled to God. James won't use any of those words, but James is articulating that same thing throughout his letter. James wants us to know that his message is that we would live what we believe. But he also has a message that God gives grace to sinners. James knew that Jesus was worth living for because James lived for him, ultimately, not at first, but ultimately he lived for his brother. Jesus was worth living for, not just believing in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words this morning. Through the, the letter of James, if we did nothing else but just open that letter and read it, we have done what you have exhorted us to do. The church coming together. Um, and all the more as we see the day approach. Lord, today we're, we're positioning ourselves like the early church would, coming together, singing songs, praying, remembering uh, the person and work of Jesus. And then we're going to celebrate that with a family meal, with communion, and we thank you for it. Lord, we've got a long way to go in James, several weeks, and I pray that you would help us to see the practicalities of living out our faith. More than that, I hope I pray that you know, underneath these different words that James uses, that you would help us to see Jesus, that you would help us to, to, to see that our faith can't just be an idle faith, just believing that it does require action, but more importantly, help us to see your gospel. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.